1: Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Hindu Studies podcast, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. I have the double pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Purushottama Elimoria and Dr. Philip Hughes, um, who are both co-editors of uh, this exciting publication, uh, 2019 Manticore Press publication, The Indian Diaspora, Hindus and Sikhs in Australia. Yes, you heard that. Hindus and Sikhs in Australia. Uh, the, obviously an understudied uh, area. So this is a really exciting contribution to scholarship. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here.
0: Thank you. Namaste. So,
1: <laughs> yeah. We've decided that Namaste that is the is the is the proper address or salutation for Zoom because we can't say good night, good morning, good evening. Uh, the sun is rising where they are and it's setting where I am. It's uh, interesting. So maybe you can both tell us a little bit about the genesis of the project, and in so doing, tell us a little bit about your your affiliations and 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 uh, you know your, your disciplinary uh, backgrounds. Um, whichever wants to go first.
0: All right, I'll go first. Um. So um, in terms of affiliation and so forth, since I'm sitting in Melbourne, Australia, well, outside Melbourne in a very beautiful countryside called Venus Bay. Um, my affiliation here is with the University of Melbourne, where I'm a principal fellow uh, in the Philosophical and Historical Studies Department and also uh, uh, with the Australia India Institute, which is a very supportive research institute that i'm I'm engaged with um, and then across the pacific uh, I'm in California, the University of california Berkeley Graduate Theological Union, and the California State University in long beach so uh and then I'm uh, also uh, have affiliations in India with Ashoka University. I was a Fulbright fellow last year in India and a member of the India International Center. Um, so in terms of the genesis of these projects, some years ago in ni- 1989, um, I had published a book on Hinduism in Australia, Mandela for the Gods. It was really to document for the first time uh, A history uh, and sort of um, spiritual experiences of Hindus in Australia, uh, both the immigration and uh, social experiences of Hindus in Australia, because temples had been coming up, especially a very big temple in Sydney, um, in New South Wales. And I had some um, funding um, from a university at that time, Deakin University, to um, research this, this topic as part of the growth of multiculturalism in in, in Australia. Um, as we'll speak a little later since the 1970s, Australia, like Canada, I would say, opened its doors to migrants from the subcontinent and other parts of Asia and Europe, of course, um, and the Americas. But there was a particular focus that I, um, I wanted to place uh, was on um, Indians. And within that, the two religious communities, at that time I only worked on uh, Hindus in Australia. Although I was interested in the Sikhs as well and early Muslim migrants, so they became part of the part of the account of Indians in Australia from the early phases um, of the migration. And then, uh, in about uh, the nineteen, uh, about mid nineteen nineties, um, the Bureau uh, of Immigration and Multicultural and Population Research in the Department of Multicultural Affairs. I think uh, Philip will. Correct me if that's uh, not the right uh, designation. Um, uh, um, uh, What is it called? Um, Commissioned uh, a set of uh, profiles called Religious Community Profiles of which um, Dr. Philip Hughes was the chief editor. And uh, since I had worked on Hindus in Australia, uh, he asked me to do the booklet on Hindus and Sikhs in Australia. Uh, and uh, Philip's own contribution was was in the in the section on Sikhs in Australia with some of the uh, uh, people coming in on that as well. So that was published in 1996 by the government of Australia. Um, and then we kept working. Uh, one of our third co-editors who we need to mention here, um, Jen Balchandra Bapat, who could not be with us today, um, had been working with me but on his own as well, because he's uh, he's uh, he's a community leader, a Hindu community leader, and a priest as well as an academic. Um, uh, so you know, very rarely you'd get an academic with two PhDs who's also a Hindu priest <laughs> in the community. So he had a lot of uh, you know exposure to and experience with the Hindu communities. So we kept writing on um, on Hindus in Australia. I kept writing on um, Indians in Southeast Australia. We wrote for the big encyclopedia of Australian people, and so we we're, were gathering bits and pieces of further information than on just what I had um, uh, what I had put together in the um, 1989 publication, which was pretty small, uh, and the 1996 publication uh, of Hindus and Sikhs. But things had changed by by mid you know by mid um, 2000s. So about, uh, uh, yes, well, you know, 1996 is a long time away. So in about 2006, we started to think about a, um, a, a, a more comprehensive project. Uh, but then I, I would be overseas a lot. So, you know, we, we weren't always able to be together. But by 19, um, uh, what was t- 2017, we produced a, um, we produced the first edition of the book that we're now talking about, which is the pretty large, you know, pretty large volume, uh, Indian Diaspora in Australia Hindus and Sikhs. That came out from DK Print World in India in 2017. I, I think I'm right. Uh, yes, uh, uh, 2000 and, and so rather came out 2015. Um, and then so the census happened in 2016. So we decided to update and bring out a uh, revised edition. Which which you have a copy of now um, and that came out in two thousand nineteen from a publisher, mentico Press here in Melbourne. So that's really the genesis of the uh, of the project. And I'm now pass on to Dr. Hughes to uh, to uh, to to tell us about his involvement.
2: Yes, so I, I was working back in nineteen ninety six for the Christian Research Association, which had been set up by. A number of, of churches, in fact, to, uh, uh, to look at, uh, to do sociological research um, on religious faith in Australia. And uh, so part of that understanding of what was happening in religious faith was looking at the sort of growing multi-faith uh, sector in, in, in Australia. Um, and then we, we received this tender uh, we, uh, from the Bureau of Immigration, Multicultural and Population Research to produce a series of uh, 10 books. They determined which groups we would uh, uh, look at. And uh, I edited the series and wrote uh, about five of them myself um, on the different uh, groups. And certainly the, the book on Hindus and Sikhs was a significant part of that. And that was the start of my uh, collaboration with uh, Purushottama. Um, One of the things that happened out of that, however, was that we found that um, while these series have been designed primarily for government departments, so that they would have a non-proselytizing, systematic, but relatively simple um, document, which would describe how these different religious communities work. Uh, it did give them some background. What we found was the schools actually used those materials most, and uh, they found them really useful. And as a consequence of that, we took all of those volumes and we put it on one CD, um, and we added a lot of multicultural and multi-media uh, content to that. So uh, uh, I went and took film of. Uh, of Jan Papat with his own ceremonies within his house, his Hindu ceremonies. I went to the Sikh Gurdwara and took film of uh, uh, what was happening in the Gurdwara and uh, added that to the CD. And uh, so we revised the whole thing. The first edition came out in 2001. Uh, we revised it again in 2006 and then again in 2010. So that there was a number of uh, editions of this which the schools have in throughout Australia have used quite extensively um but then of course uh, we we then decided that uh, we would do this expansion uh, of of that work uh, to make a really uh, very full account of Hindus and Sikhs in in Australia and I think from certainly from my point of view it was part of the um, explaining and, and telling the story of the growth of the multi-faith movement within Australia, um, the acceptance uh, of people of different religions uh, within the, the content of Australia, um, and, uh, and, and how religious faith has actually been transformed by that multicultural uh, environment so perhaps
1: this is a good time to talk about the overall structure of the book maybe just sort of the the the, the, the lay of the land the table of contents and then maybe we can dive into some of the chapters uh, afterwards
2: sure uh, i mean the the, the book has uh, basically sections on the hindus and then on the sikhs and then sort of looking at the the whole uh relationship between the sort of the Hindu and communities and the Australian context a bit and, and the sort of uh, what that all means. And there's some important appendices too that uh, um, we might go into in a few mo- moments. But um, so it actually describes uh, the, the history, um, the, the ways in which those communities are organised at the moment. Um, talks, there's materials about the temples. Um, I've contributed materials on the statistical uh, sort of data from the, the censuses and so on. We've got very accurate and very full data uh, from our censuses in Australia that more than I think anywhere else in the world, uh, more detail is available um, from the census on the, each of the religious communities. And uh, so uh, I've been involved in, in analysing that and seeing those patterns um, I think we need to sort of just note that the uh, uh, Indian diaspora has been the, the fastest-growing group uh, in Australia um, since about 2005. I think that would be right, wouldn't it, Purushottama? Yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, so it's it's become a very significant part of the whole sort of multicultural. Seen in Australia. So if you actually add the numbers of Sikhs and Hindus together, it's equ- roughly equivalent to the number of Buddhists uh, and roughly equivalent to the number of Muslims in Australia. And in fact, is quite larger than any one of the church going populations, the largest of which is the Catholics. And uh, there is, you know, about uh, six six 600,000 people. Oh,
0: would What is so- the thought- Catholic would be in the millions, or, or the Protestants. Oh, well, the
2: Catholic, those who identify as Catholic are in the millions. Um, but those who, uh, and c- certainly they're about five million, but in fact, when you actually look at those who actually attend <laughs> and, and yes, are must. involved, uh, you're down to 600,000, which is about the same number of, uh, of uh, Hindus and Sikhs.
0: Right. And also, I think we might add that um, uh, in terms of the language, um, it is noted that Punjabi is the fastest-growing language, which is, of course, is spoken by uh, Sikhs, but also by uh, Hindus from, from the northern and north um, northwestern regions. So that's a very interesting bit of statistics as well.
2: And another statistic that might Im- be significant for in America is the fact that the Sikh community is now larger than the Jewish community in Australia. Right. Um uh, so it's it's really, while the Jewish community has been here for a very long time and the Sikh community is quite new, certainly the, the Sikh community is, is in itself is having a significant yeah. place. Yeah.
1: yeah. So tell us a bit about uh, the, the history, the story of why there are so many Hindus and Sikhs in Australia. How did that come about?
0: Um, well, OK, I could come in on this. Um, it's actually quite an interesting Quite an interesting history when you when you dive into it. Um, of course, it, um, it goes back to the um, uh, you know the sort of machinations of the um, British Empire uh, when the British expanded their their empire you know, beyond India. Let us say, um, and the East India Company, very well established in India, was establishing itself in India in 1792. Um, they needed. Labor, uh, and they needed, of course, raw material from places as well. But to produce those raw material, you needed labor, uh, and a number of Britishers um, came and settled in Australia. So they had experience already of, uh, you know, the sort of the versatility of and the dexterity of Indian laborers, um, and of course, after these, after the abolition of slavery, they of course started the, the system called indentured labor. Indentured, indentured labor, and among them were, you know, a number of Indians who, who were brought over to the colonies. They were taken to South Africa, Natal, Mauritius, Tanzania, Kenya, Ghana, and, and all, all kinds of Ghana, uh, uh, Mauritius, I think I mentioned, um, and they thought, well, they should have some men in Australia as well. Well, that's the sort of genesis of um, the demand, at least for Indian labor, they, they hadn't. they didn't arrive just immediately. The first sort of people who landed, I think, from from the Indian subcontinent were Laskers, were people who worked on the boat. And, and they um, accompanied their masters and became their servants, became their domestic servants, house servants. Some worked in farms as well. And so the um, the, the idea of of bringing laborers from India. Goes far back. Goes as far back as uh, 1798. Um, there were recorded something like maybe ten servants had come initially uh, to work on farms outside Sydney in New South Wales, um, and they had um, they had strong links, as I said, with the East India Company. In fact, the Tagore family were involved in. Um, in some context some cultural contact with uh, with residents in Australia, not so much with the Indians themselves, but with the British, as people who, who liked the Indian culture. And in fact, at, at Monash University, there's a whole array of, uh, whole, whole, whole cupboard full of uh, sitars and musical instruments that were sent by Dwarkanath Tagore. It's very really interesting. Period. Um, and then the uh, the so the pattern of migration of Indians to uh, other parts of the empire followed in Australia as well. By 1838, there were some 2000 laborers in New South Wales alone, but there was a concern about diluting the, the settler labor, but as the, you know, of the, of, the, of the increasing white settler population in the country. And with some, I think Europeans may have been coming at that time as well. Um, and it was triggered by a, a, a little bit of a, a little bit of an incident in in, in Mauritius, um, which we don't need to go into, um, but there was a sort of a bit of an outcry across the empire that, uh, you know, these laborers are up to no good. Um, they're opportunists. They're filthy. They're dirty. They're basically heathens, and that's a sort of propaganda that went around in the colonies, in in other parts of the colonies, in Australia. So there was a there was a um, there was an attempt to halt migration of Indian laborers, both by the local communities, the local societies, the settler communities, but also by the Indian government because the laborers were being abused. Um, they were not being paid. Their return fares, which was promised, were not being given to them. And so you know they were left penniless, starving, and so on. Uh, but that did not actually stop the laborers coming. There was a bit of a gold rush happening in 1850 uh, and that led to migration of people from Central India, um, mostly from Nagpur, uh, but also via uh, via Kolkata, people from Banaras and places like that, uh, and from the south, uh, Tamil Nadu and uh, Andhra Pradesh. Uh, so there was a sort of a, a, an attitude of, you know, patronizing, as there has always been, you know, British British towards Indians. But they were also, at the same time, apprehensive of the, you know, of the, of their racial, um, uh, their racial makeup. So there was an opposition as well as, uh, as well as, some positive disposition towards Indian labor. So that's sort of part of the politics, if you like, of imperialism uh, anywhere. Um, there was an incident of a Muslim convict came from uh, via Bombay, from Bombay via Mauritius even married a fellow um, woman convict originally from Liverpool that was in 1846 in what is now Tasmania. But that was very rare. So there wasn't the intermixing that was going on. In fact, if anything, as time went on, uh, the Indian laborers, particularly among uh, Afghan uh, cameleers, who who I want to talk about next from 1860s, a whole lot of um, cameleers were brought into Australia uh, they married into Australian native population, which we would call Australian Aboriginal and Torres Islander people and there are still descendants from those periods who are, who, who, are, who are prominent both in politics but also in sports um, so that was very rare so this is the phase of what i i 'd call the um, uh, the the banishment, you know, not they were not exactly banished, but uh, like the convicts were, but they were brought from from India to work alongside convicts uh, to go into the hinterland uh, and explore, cultivate, um, develop farms, and and help the pioneers actually to 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 settle in very rugged countries. I mean, you know, it was quite a challenging not. Not not all the settlers could handle in the way that the native native Aboriginal people could 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 live quite harm, uh, peacefully and harmoniously uh, in nature and the Indians could work um, and that part of the history was forgotten so we wanted to bring in uh, as much of this as possible um, and they started also to farm themselves um, they went on uh, lease properties they they leased properties uh, and started farming banana, and sugar sugarcane in northern New South Wales. And those communities are still surviving. They're mostly Sikhs at that time. So, the, the, so there, were, there, were, there were Hindu Muslims, some of them who came from Baluchi, um, uh, from, from, from Patan regions. Uh, with now they uh, present-day Pakistan. Uh, and from Afghan came the cameliers. By uh, uh, 1890s, there were up to 2000. Ah, uh, uh When they when their contract was over, they either returned or became hawkers. And there was a very uh, common sight at that in in the late 1890s s of um, Indian hawkers, uh, who, who, they were, who they were called turban intruders. You know, sort of, um, uh, that was sort of one label given of them. But but they were also you know very very um, very very good merchants. I mean, they took things into uh, into townships. Um, even here, there is a record of a hawker uh, arriving with his cart and spending a night by the river. You know, he couldn't, couldn't. There was nowhere else for him to stay, and the local people bought things which they would not have, you know, access to at those times. Some of these items were actually imported from India by other uh, Indian, by in, uh, uh, by Indian merchants. Um, so, um, uh, so the, this this phase sort of ends in about the 1900s uh, early 1900s when a spate of immigration policies immigration restriction acts were passed by the colonies around australia um, and the rise of the idea uh, the ideology of white superiority so as a part of the part, you know, part of this sort of anglo-british protestant christian mentality that's that that uh, uh, planted the seeds of what came to be from about 1901, when there was a federation of the colonies in Australia of what was called the White Australia Policy. But still there were about two to um, 4,000 Indians. Uh, And uh, well, they were called Hindus, H-I-N-D-O-O, Hindus, uh, meaning Indian nationals, among whom of course were Afghans because that was all part of the greater India sovereignty that that was under British rule at that time. So just to summarize this part, there was a contribution, there was a need for labour, but they were not treated as well as they should have been because there was no such thing as civil rights, which of course Gandhi was fighting for uh, in South Africa for the Indian labourers there. There was no such movement in Australia, unfortunately, but it did rise the the ire of the of the settler people here that well you know what if what if the Indian uh, the indian uh, laborist beginner movement here, a bit like the Gadar movement, as you know in California and british columbia with which was started by the Sikhs so there was fear of these sort of movements and there were little resistances and clashes and conflicts that went on between the um, between the between the, the the local Indian residents and labor unions uh, or the um, or even you know, uh, uh, or white laborers anywhere. Uh, so there was a rise of xenophobia, which then led to the decline of Indian immigration from about 1900 um, till the 1950s, 1960s. There was sporadic uh, sporadic immigration during the war, uh, right between the wars, uh, uh, and the the people who arrived were mostly merchants and students. So we have we have to this day. Very uh, prominent merchant family from Pune, who were originally from Sindh area, Sindhis or the Um They came and joined um, companies that were uh, mining, mining minerals and so on, mostly gold, but then they moved to mining opal. And they're one of the leading opal traders in Melbourne to this day. Um, and also so, uh, a, a, a great support for the Hindu community because they set up. Little welfare groups social uh help groups and women's groups as well so that's uh, the the long and short of it uh, I will stop here and uh we'll have Philip talk about the migration from uh, from after the abolition of the white australia policy the 1970s because some very interesting statistics that uh, that come into play at that from that point on
2: certainly after world War two and the um the Australian government and the Australian people felt that their country was vulnerable. And uh, uh, as it had as it had been shown to be to the Japanese, uh, we were certainly Darwin was, was bombed and so on. And there was real concern that uh, Australia could be sort of conquered by the Japanese. And there was a great desire to build the population. And uh, thus the um, Australian government was very active in the 1950s to invite uh, migrants. Now, most of the early migrants came from Europe, um, but uh, there was an increasing sense that uh, we should not be distinguishing um, people by uh, race um, and, uh, and uh, or religion, but uh, certainly should be welcoming people who could contribute to the uh, building Australia. And uh, so certainly in the 70s, the white Australia policy, as it had been called, um, basically faded uh, away. And we began inviting sort of uh, people from quite different diverse places into Australia. Uh, there was people from Lebanon arrived uh, from the late 60s, early 70s, then after the Vietnam War, there was a lot of uh, Vietnamese arrived in Australia, um, and then the coup in Fiji um, brought a, a first wave of uh, Hindus into into Australia. Um, but the uh, Australia has been seen, I think, as a as a very attractive place to live in in a, a range of ways. I mean, we uh, we've we've got a a high standard of living, we've got uh, good wages and, and so on. Um, but the policies of the government have been to invite people who could contribute um, to needed professions. And so a large proportion of people have come in because they've got particular expertise. Some of that's been academic, but a uh, lot of doctors, uh, medical uh, People have, have come in, engineers, uh, people with uh, business expertise, and so on. Um, and uh, so uh, there's a whole range of classes, of, of groups of people, of occupational classes that have been invited uh, uh, into Australia. Uh, others have also come as students, and then uh, many of those have stayed on. So uh, certainly uh, the there's been a large overseas student uh, population in australia studying at our universities and uh, and many of them have then found uh, jobs within within australia and have been able to stay so that's it's a very different story to uh, the story of the 19th century i mean most of the people who've come have been highly educated and in fact the hindu community is the highest educated of all religious groups uh, in Australia, um, with over over half of them having university degrees and a large proportion of them having postgraduate degrees. Um, But that's the people that the Australian government has allowed in um, with their their visa system. Um, So, uh, and that's created a a very uh, particular and peculiar, uh, I think, uh, uh, Indian diaspora in in Australia
1: and all you have the floor philip do you want to say a little bit in particular about the Sikh community or or does or is it covered in, in your narrative at large
2: um certainly uh the, the Sikh community um has uh, come in often as as students um again uh, that they, they've they, while a, sort of a, a few have gone into to farming and so on um They've, they've also sort of tended to move into a, a range of, of occupations. Um, on the other hand, it is also true that uh, a lot of people don't find immediately the positions that are quite equivalent to their occupational um, status and their educational um, ability. And um, in fact, a large number of Sikhs in, in uh, Australia are drivers. Um, they play a major role in Australia Post uh, in terms of delivering our, our mail and uh, our parcels. Um, They're also our taxi drivers, uh, large numbers of taxi drivers at the moment. Um, but I see that. I mean, a lot of them have come even within the last 10 years. And uh, over a period of time, we'll see a lot of those people move into other professions uh, as uh, they find ways into the, the wider community.
1: Great. Right. Uh, what I think would be uh, a great thing to talk about next is the practices. I'll leave it sort of general. Um, maybe, Boshottama, you can start off with Hindu practices in terms of, you want to talk about? temple architecture or things that might be sort of distinctive in this context or, or similar across the Hindu diaspora? Without leading the question, can you tell us a little bit about the practice of Hinduism in Australia?
0: Sure. I, I'll, I'll co-editor, uh, uh, Dr. Jen Bapat would have been most uh, appropriate for this part of the discussion. Uh, but I, you know, I followed his work and, and also uh, um, done work on the um, the Hindu temples uh, that's the, the chapter that I contributed to the book um, well sort of very early on I tried to look for what kinds of practices you know Hindus uh, you know Hindus Hindus uh, were engaged in early on and is almost kind of minimal uh, most 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 worship happened inside the house in a small shrine and so forth so there is an incident um, which is connected with the emergence of the if you like the temple culture in Australia. Uh, a Sri Lankan Hindu uh, couple had been visiting Sydney they just came as tourists, staying in a hotel possibly. Um, uh, and they were out shopping in one of the big um, malls, shopping areas like what's called Myers here, a bit like JCPenney in Australia, in the US. And uh, but sadly, the man um, had a heart attack and he collapsed. He died uh, on the way to the hospital. And of course, uh, in India, you know, people would do the funeral within twenty-four hours. Now, how is this woman going to organize a, 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 a cremation? I mean, it knows nobody. <laughs> there was absolutely no way. I mean, half the people that you know came out to help and so forth had not heard of crem- cremation in Australia. <laughs> um yeah. in the early 1970s uh, so um they quickly put her in touch with some um uh, in, uh, a Hindu school teacher who uh, thankfully also served as a part-time priest and uh, they said yes well you know we can organize commission and so we said but i have to I, I have to go to a temple to do the worship and make offerings and so they said no we don't have any temple and that sort of Triggered a whole you know a whole conscience in the community that we don't have a temple or we should do something about this. Well, that's how a group started in New South Wales called the Hindu Society of New South Wales, and they they went about establishing a temple. Got in touch with the um, uh, the Tirupati the Devasthanam. It's a very very big, one of the biggest temples, at least one of the largest pilgrimage places in India. Not the biggest temple, perhaps. Um, and got some help from them. Architects came out and a very magnificent temple came up within five years. It's absolutely quite a magnificent that was That was on the cover of, the temple was on the cover of the, um, the first book that I did on uh, Hindus in, uh, in Australia, it's built in the South the South Indian Chola Pandya style of temple, but also as a cultural center too. So it became a place where Hindus would gather um, to do the, uh, the, their prayers, pujas, worship, uh, but also conduct marriages, uh, initiation of the, the newborn, um, the final rites uh, where they would go in and perform, uh, not some of the final rites there, but also do make the offerings and so forth, and then um, lead um, the procession on from outside to to the um, to the funeral palace, uh, wherever they needed to take the body, the corpse too. Um, That inspired um, that particular phenomenon of building a temple, which is also, as I said, a cultural center for the Hindus, but also a symbol and a landmark of of their arrival and their presence in the country, inspired uh, Hindu communities in other parts of Australia, uh, first in Melbourne. um, uh, So I I was part of the group that that designed the temple actually, Laid the first kind of ideas of what sort of a, a, a cultural center you'd also want, and one of the one of the emphases we made was that there it should also be an educational institute where languages could be taught, where rituals could be taught, and the significance of uh, the rituals and 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 whatever it is that that Hindus do in temples or at their homes could be taught to the to the next generation, to the younger generation, and that's been a, quite a successful project actually in 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 the in both the temple outside Melbourne called Karam Downs, um, and also the, the temples in, in New South Wales. And, and then they've come up in other places. I, mean, I think Philip has the count of the number of temples that have come up in Australia and they, they keep coming up. I mean, each time I'm away overseas and I come back, there's another temple somewhere, uh, to the Devi, to Murugan, to you know, the South Indian temple, North Indian temple, the Fiji-Hindi community, uh, that we mentioned earlier, that uh, arrived with, after the two coups in Fiji, they have their own establishment as well, their own temples. The Sri Lankan Hindus are very, very active um, in all the major temples in the country. They have some of it. They have their uh, they have their own little temples because of the distinctive gods that uh, that they would worship um, uh, or have allegiance to. And now coming back to sort of practices and so forth. Well, there's a range of practices that Hindus do, of course, in any, you know, in any country, especially in India, uh, but they had been brought over here as well. So they observed the samskaras, the birthright festivals, uh, rather the ceremonies, uh, followed by the, you know, the taking of the hair of the, of, of the, of the infant, um, of the baby, rather, uh, onto, um, onto initiation rites for, uh, for, the, you know, for the upper caste boys, especially Brahmins, uh, and then on to uh, ceremonies around uh, puberty um, uh, and uh, onwards to marriage, the ceremonies around marriage so there are now. Um, there, wasn't, uh, there wasn't even a, a Hindu celebrant. Um, uh, I pushed for that. And uh, Jan bapat was uh, one of the first, was really the first Hindu celebrant, at least in the state of Victoria. There may, have been, there may have been Hindu celebrities in other states as well. So it was a very rare phenomenon to actually have a, uh, a Hindu priest and a celebrant who could be, um, you know, who could be recognized as, as an official person who could conduct rites and rituals, including um, uh, marriage uh, and uh, the ant- Antiashti, the, the last rites for, for the deceased. Hmm. So it's been a very significant develop, development. But I think Hindus have always continued to have a little shrine in their home, and 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 like right now during the Diwali period, uh, you know, everybody lights a, a diya or lights a lamp in their homes and uh, worships, uh, um, give devotion to Lakshmi and Ganesh and Rama and uh, Krishna and, and Kali and whoever else associated with Diwali. So those those things are going on, uh, have been going on in the in the Hindu families and in the, and the community at large. Um, but increasingly, the temples are becoming sort of more and more uh, significantly important, uh, both as an as a architectural landmark uh, for their presence in the country, um, but also a place where they meet other, uh, other Hindus, take their children uh, to introduce them to the colors and the icons of, uh, you know, of, of Hindu um, spirituality. Um, uh, and also uh, attempt to uh, uh, attempt to uh, disseminate uh, the languages that, that are spoken in, in their homes. Although, you know, that's a, a, a decreasing phenomenon uh, uh, because of the makeup of the society, sort of the requirement of English. But there are places where uh, Hindi and, and Guru Mukhi Punjabi are being taught, even in schools. I'm not quite sure it's become a an option at the moment uh, for what I call uh, well, the higher, higher higher school certificate, mm-hmm. um, but there has been attempt to introduce um, Hindi languages certainly in the university level. Okay, so um, so that I think sort of explains to some extent the um, the the prevalence uh, of uh, Hindu practices among the com- in the community. Um, now, as for Sikh, uh, as for the Sikh uh, community, the gurudwaras uh, are very important, and there's been large number of um, there's been a large, uh, 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 yeah, large number of gurudwaras have come up. Um, in fact, um, uh, only about uh, 70 miles, uh, about 90 kilometers from here, there is a Gurudwara now, which was never the case uh, four years ago. Um, the, the Sikhs, of course, uh, 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 have their worship a lot more in Gurudwaras. But the early times, they had little tin little, uh, sects, uh, uh, sort of tin structures where they would, um, they would have a Guru Granth and they would um, do their kirtans and uh, offer worship. Uh, uh, but the first Gurudwara, the large Gurudwara they came up was in northern New South Wales, some of the um, banana plantation community, a place called Wulgulga. It's a quite an architectural feat, actually. It's a, it's a very very prominent, wonderful um, wonderful Gurdwara Sikh temple. Um, the Sikhs, of course, also celebrate the Guru Nanak. They celebrate Diwali in their own way um, and uh, various other, um, uh, various other uh, points in, the, in their own almanac in their calendar. Uh, of, uh, the victory of, uh, Guru Gobind Singh, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Mm. So that's, uh, they're very conscious, the Sikh community is very conscious of their spirituality and, um, they make every effort to, to, to develop, uh, a, a sense of belonging among the Sikh, um, uh, community, the first, second, third generation as well. They keep the tradition of, uh, of of wearing turbans and the um, the the cloth for the uh, with the hair tied up for the for the for the younger the young uh, the, the, the the offspring as well uh, uh, and what else I could mention in this in this context um, uh, yes the the Sikh communities that have come from other parts from Fiji from Malaysia they tend to have their own uh, community establishments they own gurudwara sometimes as well. Uh, so there's an interesting dynamic that goes on in that context as well. And I think you may see that possibly in, in Canada as well. I I think, especially in British Columbia, where there are lots of different, lots of different, um, Sikh communities that have come from different parts of the diaspora. Uh, they tend to, um, keep to themselves. There's a, a very interesting, um, just a sort of footnote to what philip was uh, uh, mentioning earlier among the sikh uh, among the sikh uh, punjabi groups who 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 are, who are here who came over uh, as um as qualified people but then couldn't have their uh, qualifications recognized so they um they would go to other professions um and they've been very helpful uh, towards the building of gurudwaras as well mm-hmm. um because they have some of the skills that are needed to, to, um, to build structures that are closer to the structures of the Gurudwara, the Amrits, uh, Amritsar Gurudwara, Guru Sahib, then uh, than, 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 you know, would be available among the architects and builders in Australia. Um, yes, so I think I should leave that part there.
1: Sure, Philip, is there anything you wanted to, more to say about the um, statistical profiles of these communities? Your contribution to the book.
2: Mm. Uh, just moving on from where where uh, Purushottama left us, um, one of the factors that's been significant in Australia is that the communities are widely dispersed, and um, particularly the Hindu community, and partly uh, because of their occupations and so on, um, they're not located in particular suburbs uh, to any great extent. Um, They're widely dispersed through the community. What that has meant, however, in terms of uh, temples, at least to some extent, is that uh, people, there's been no sort of gatherings of uh, populations uh, around a particular temple, as it were. Um, And to some extent, um, I think different Hindu groups from different parts of India and Uh, And the worship of of different gods has actually taken place within the same temple in some instances in Australia. Mm -hmm. Um, So you've got um, uh, people coming together who wouldn't naturally have come together perhaps in in India itself. Um, And and indeed, I I believe that there's still a a major project building a large uh, Hindu temple within Melbourne, which quite deliberately is, is there to bring a, a variety of communities together um, So yeah. uh, that that certainly happened um, the uh, and one of the other sort of dimensions is that uh, um, there is some multi-faith uh, activities so certainly uh, our friend uh, uh, jump part, has been involved in a number of multi-faith weddings um, where he as a Hindu priest has actually taken part alongside a, a Christian minister and uh, and uh, had interfaith uh, uh, weddings and so on. But, uh, so th- there's been some creativity in designing um, what's possible in terms of worship within this very different context uh, in Australia. Uh, and I do think that Religions tend to take on different expressions as they evolve in different contexts. Uh, and we've seen just a little of that uh, in Australia so far. My expectation is that even more will happen. Um, one other side of it has been the the, the aspect of the missions. Uh, just close to where I live is uh, the Vedanta mission and uh, for, for Melbourne and uh, they've been very involved in multi-faith activities. Uh, I chair a a um, a local council-initiated interfaith network, and uh, they've played a a significant role in that network. And uh, so the the missions also um, have been quite significant in bringing uh, Hindu communities uh, together, but also in terms of actually playing a role in the wider community. Um, there's been quite a lot of publicity to the fact that Sikh uh, communities were very active in the, uh, some areas in, in the bushfire yes. in the last January um, and uh, helped to, to bring food and so on to um, communities that were devastated by those bushfires. And, and uh, so... Uh, they're they're playing a role in the, the wider Australian
1: population.
0: Great, yeah, it's fascinating. that was a very poignant observation Philip made that this kind of ecumenism within the Hindu and to some extent Sikh community as well, although they're not as uh, they're not they're not as divided in you know, in the subcontinent um there are there are there are different sectarian groups but they tend to be together they are divided more along um country national lines than there are amongst among among the different sects uh, in the sikh communities so if uh, perhaps not uh, divided but perhaps they're separated so um for some reason or other malaysian sikhs would want to have their own uh, gurudwara and uh, the indian sikhs would have their of their own but in the in the hindu temple you see um you see Tamil Hindus, North Indian Hindus, uh, other South Indian Hindus coming together with their own gods. So you know you'd have under the same roof you'd have Shiva and Vishnu, which which is not very common in, in, in the Indian context. Um, so Ganesh, Shiva, uh, Vishnu, Devi, Durga, Kartike, Murugan, uh, uh, Subramania, all all under the same canopy. It's is just very it's very very interesting, and that sort of predisposes them to some extent to an ecumenism in the wider context as well, which you know, which we, we refer to as the multi-faith, the inter-religious uh, dialogue. But the Sikhs have been also very prominent from very early on in multi in multi-faith, uh, inter-religious uh, dialogue um, um, uh, uh, and interaction uh, in, in, in the community. Followed by by the Hindus as well, of course.
1: So uh, we're pretty close to time for today. But before we close, was there anything in particular about uh, about the book that you wanted to bring to the fore, or bring to our attention?
0: Well, I um, think- for me, mm. mm-hmm, sorry, uh, for me, it's 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 also a um, so you know the perspective where we, uh, that I I bring in is is a, a more cosmopolitan one as well. So I've been interested in the. The global phenomena of uh, of uh, Indian diaspora uh, and diaspora itself. I mean, that's the whole theoretical. The first chapter in the book is really about uh, about about the whole notion of uh, or concept of diaspora as is being dealt with by many many different communities. Because it starts with the uh, the Jewish community, but the, the the term is actually from the Greek um, experience very early on. So I'm I'm interested in the migration, the movement of. Uh, people, but also ideas, text, um, other kinds of capital, if you like, and what happens in the process of settlement and adaptation and so forth. So, you know, in, in, a, in, in a sense, this is sort of a case study for me uh, of what's going on in the uh, in the interglobal context. So that's uh, that's one thing. And I uh, 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 that uh, that's that's one phenomenon that for me, that's that's important in this context. And, and also the, the, the global context, you know, so the globalization, if you like, of Hinduism on the political side as well. So we're now not just talking about Hindus, but we're talking about you know, the, 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 the faith system or the ideology, if you like, called Hindu and how other forms of Hinduism, nationalist Hinduism has, has traveled during Gandhi's time or during Shastri's time. Uh, and in recent times, you know, with the rise of Hindutva, uh, uh, and the rise of uh, Narendra Modi as a prime minister in India, what kind of impact that's had in the in the diaspora, and that's another subject matter. But we you know we do deal with that a little bit in the book as well, and similarly with the Sikh diaspora community as well, and you know, the rise of Khalistan, the idea of Khalistan, which actually started in the diaspora um, in Los Angeles, and uh, uh, mind you, also in Australia. So uh, with some backing from Australian Sikhs, so that's. These are interesting dynamics that are to be looked at in the global. For me, in the in the global phenomenon, Um, but Philip might speak to the sort of uh, spike of, if you like, um, of Hindu and Sikh communities at the present time. How from since nineteen seventies, or even or even in uh, even in um, nineteen even two thousand census, you know, we had something like three hundred thousand Hindus and. uh, 120,000 Sikhs, and now the figures are sort of, you know, like exponential, they've sort of grown almost double. I think I'd be right to say that, Philip. Mm.
2: Oh, yes. Yes, uh, from my point of view, I, th- I think the most one of the most interesting aspects of the uh, underlying the book is, in fact, the story of multiculturalism in Australia and uh, how this particular part of multiculturalism uh, comes into into the into the Australian context, uh, expresses itself in new ways in that context, um, but also how it's received uh, by the wider community. And certainly, I've got some statistics there. I mean, uh, the level of acceptance of Hinduism has risen over the last uh, ten years, as it's been measured, um, and. Uh, in a recent survey, 2018, we've got 25% of the population who said that they were quite positive to Hindus. 50% are neutral. Um, uh, often, a lot of people don't don't know a Hindu and don't have a particular feeling. Um, there's only there's about 15% of the population who feel negatively towards the Hindus, and a lot of those people would feel negatively about most of the. Uh, other religious groups too. There's there's always a group of people um, who find it hard to accept people who are different from themselves. Um, but 80% uh, of the population said that they would accept a political candidate of uh, who of different religions. And we uh, certainly, in my own area, uh, one of the uh, candidates who stood and got got close to getting in last time was uh, was a Sikh. Uh, Sikh women who are very skilled in in law and so on, 70% of the population say that they respect all religions. Um, So there is a wide uh, acceptance. It it varies from place to place and and certainly I think in the multicultural cities where people are used to having a variety of people around them from different backgrounds and of different faiths and uh, and so on there's a greater acceptance there's certainly a greater acceptance amongst the more highly educated and there's a greater acceptance amongst younger people rather than uh, older people who uh, um, have not uh, perhaps had the same exposure uh, certainly through school um, that uh, younger people have had to peoples of different backgrounds but there is there is this broad acceptance and I think multiculturalism in Australia in, generally, in general works. And I think this book is, a, to some extent, a testament uh, to that. Uh, how a community can maintain its identity, maintain its faith, its origins within this multicultural environment. Fantastic. I uh, just wanted to add,
0: um, uh, yes, uh, uh, to the uh, increasing participation of, of Hindus and, and Sikhs. Um, and uh, you know non-aligned um Indians uh, as well as, as I would call them um uh is is certainly increasing at local government levels. I think we see that quite quite a bit right I mean you know at local government levels, um perhaps not as yet in the state um or the national levels in the way we see it in Canada. i mean you know with uh uh with Trudeaus having having very close uh Sikh uh members. Uh, as his ministers and so on. I mean, that, that hasn't come to Australia, but hopefully it will. It has happened. actually has happened in New Zealand, which is very interesting. Um, uh, and we are making some comparisons of Hindus in New Zealand and Australia, which is, uh, and Sikhs in Australia and New Zealand as well. Uh, but in the US, um, there have been uh, uh, Sikhs at least, uh, and now uh, increasingly Hindus have been entering the House of Representatives. And now, of course, you know, Kamala Harris, who comes from a part Hindu family, Tamil family, is possibly the next vice president of the United States. So that's something that we might want to aim for it in Australia as well.
1: Unless I'm mistaken, she's definitely the next vice president of the United States. Um, well, but-
0: I'm, 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 I'm thinking of um, Mr. Trump, you see. I don't want to be too insulting to, to him and his aspirations. Of course, I vote in the California, so you can imagine where my words would have gone.
1: <laughs> well, um, suffice it to say the world is changing. Uh, and uh, uh, throughout the globe, we see the rise of multiculturalism. And we also see the boons and the challenges incurred by such as the natural evolution of becoming a globe. Never before have we had to do this We're learning to become a globe. Gentlemen, it's been uh, great speaking. You today, about this really interesting, fascinating um, uh, publication. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast.
0: Will you show the um, I, I don't have a copy of it, but would you put up the the on the on, on this podcast the uh by, yeah, image of the book? Uh, that's great, and also I sure. think it, it's available, it's available in amazon.com, but um, it's also available from the publisher. I think that would be appreciated. Then show this
1: yeah, as per the custom for the New Books Network as a whole, including this podcast channel, there'll be a description um, with uh, both of you in your bios and the description of the book, and there'll be um, links to how one can get the book. And I certainly will uh, forward the image of the cover to them as well. So if they're not already going to use that, uh, they will now.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. And and what is okay. the distribution? I mean who 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 does this podcast reach? Does it does it go through the, the diaspora community or is it more
1: there there is a uh, an, uh there's a conglomeration called the New Books Network. And it is a consortium of approximately 85 subject area podcasts. Uh, so there might be a new books in X studies and Y studies. Uh, I host uh, the new books in Hindu studies. And so yeah. I look at all of the new scholarship in the field and the, the textures of the channels will will fluctuate uh, as per the pensions of the hosts and the discipline and, and the interest. And, and, and they're all their own separate right. uh, uh, entities. As for this channel, um, it's uh, bizarrely popular <laughs> for so, something so nerdy. And so there are a great number of uh, lifelong learners, you know, People interested in Hinduism certainly a great number of folks in the diaspora and a great number of our specialist colleagues as well. So it's a wide range um, right, right. of people either interested in learning more about Hindu studies or uh, or or looking to hopefully vet the book for purchase or vet the book for their own research or their teaching. If that makes yeah, sense. That's how
0: you picked up. Uh, that's how you picked up the Hinduism and contemplative studies that I co-edited with uh, Rita Sharma.
1: Yes, and that's, how, that's, that's how, how you contacted me, because uh, Purushottam was actually the co-editor of that book that we did with, uh, with uh, uh, Rita Sharma, um, and he contacted me to cover this book. So indeed, indeed, that's how. So, and we've uh, got
0: now the a, a, a Contemplative Studies in Jainism coming out, too. So, so uh, well,
1: we can certainly cover that on this podcast as well, because we're exceedingly Uh, looking at various developments uh, in South Asian religion. So um, given that there isn't a a channel dedicated to Jain studies, I've indicated to them I'm happy to cover Jain studies on this podcast as well, because it's so inextricable from the fabric of Hinduism in many contexts. Um, Fantastic. So uh, you'll stay on for a moment and I'll formally sign off for for those of you listening out there. (laughs) Um, Thank you for listening. Uh, Your first priority is staying safe. Uh, Your second is continuing to listen, continuing to read, and continuing to contemplate the Indian diaspora. Take care.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much.